except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew it to betray him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. After he washed their feet, he put on his robe. And in return to the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly I tell you, servants are not greater than their masters, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Garbage trucks have grown extremely popular in my house. Uh, you know my son, some of you, and so there's the chuckle. But um, yeah, we have toy garbage trucks in my house that work. Uh, they, they have lights, they make sounds. We have a toy dumpster. Every kid's dream. And my son, Matthew, has begun playing uh, Bulk Trash Day. I don't know if you're familiar with Bulk Trash Day. That's the day that people take horrible items from their backyard that have been rotting, mattresses, broken down desks, just hideous giant trash, put them in their front yards for a couple of unlucky people with gloves and a skid steer to try and cram into the back of a garbage truck. My son thinks of this as a fantasy dream job, a game to play. And every time the garbage man comes to our house, it is an event. We go outside, we cheer, we clap, we wave, and the garbage man loves us. Loves us because we are his only audience. And my son thinks he has the greatest job in the world, that he is one of the most interesting people in the world. And that's funny and it's cute because we know that that is not true. That nobody hopes their children grow up to be garbage collectors. Nobody hopes their children grow up to be servants. We want them to be important. We want them to be leaders. Because we don't want to be servants. We want to be important. We want to be leaders. And Jesus here is showing us, as he so often does, that the way of discipleship runs counter to the way of the world. The scene is a dinner, right? And it's Passover, so it's a little bit like Thanksgiving. There's roast lamb, there's herbs, people are drinking wine. It is a good time. Everybody's really enjoying themselves. And right in the middle of it, Jesus starts to ruin things by trying to teach everybody something. And the disciples are probably used to this at this point. You might have noticed that Jesus sort of eats his way through the Gospels, constantly having conversations with people at dinner. And So when he stands up and does something weird in the middle of a meal, it's actually not that weird. But then Jesus takes it too far. Verse 8, look in your Bibles. So in verse 8, Peter literally says something like this in Greek. Absolutely not. My feet you will never wash. It's as strong as you could possibly imagine him saying. He uses lots of negative words really rapidly. Why is Peter so upset? Why is he so offended? Well, Jesus is acting like a slave. And that word means something different in the 21st century in America than it did in the first century in Rome. It wasn't as racial or as violent. But still, you have the general idea. Jesus is acting like and dressing like a slave. The master, the lord, the leader is humiliating himself. Even in ancient Rome, foot washing was a bad job for slaves. Even among slaves, this is demeaning work. This is the kind of work you only do if somebody makes you do it. So not important slaves, but unimportant slaves. Really the bottom of the totem pole would do this. And this isn't just because feet have you know, a smell to them. And it's not just because of sweat and dirt. 
it's because the ancient world didn't have great sewer systems and garbage collection. And they rode animals everywhere. So in the streets, there were puddles of urine and poop, human and animal, and rotting garbage. No matter how good you are at stepping around those things with your open-toed sandals, you're bound to get some of it on you. And so when you show up to somebody's home, if it's a nice house, they'll at least put out water and a couple of towels. But in a really nice house, they'd provide someone to do this washing for you. Someone who had no choice. Someone who was truly nothing. Jesus has taken that role. He's taken off his robe, he's rolled up his sleeves, tied a towel around himself, he's down on his hands and knees, washing their feet. That's not just gross at dinner. That's abasing yourself. It's, he's humiliating himself, and Peter doesn't want him to do that. Because Peter doesn't understand why Jesus has come. Jesus has come to humiliate himself. I'm going to say that again. Jesus has come in order to humiliate himself. That is why Jesus came. Verse 1 says, the hour has come finally to go back to the Father. Judas, his betrayer, is sitting at dinner, and Jesus is going to wash his feet also. Can you imagine anything more humiliating for a human being? That God has given everything into his hands, it says in verse 3, that he knows he's come from God, that he's going to God. And that's why Jesus can give all this away, because he knows exactly who he is. He knows he has all this power, and he can give it up. Not just washing people's feet, but at the cross. Chapter 13 in the Gospel of John is the beginning of four chapters, 13 to 17, where Jesus is slowly and steadily marching to the cross, and every word he says is teaching his disciples something a little bit more about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow him, and where it is that they're going as they follow Jesus. They're going to the cross. Paul in Philippians says it like this, that Jesus Christ, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be clung to, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a slave, being obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. One of the ancient church fathers said of this passage, he who wraps the heavens in the clouds wrapped around himself a towel. He who pours water into rivers and pools tipped water into a basin. And he before whom every knee bends in heaven and on earth and under the earth knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. Jesus has come to humiliate himself. The amazing thing that Christians believe is not just that God became a man, mighty and powerful and dangerous. It's that God became a man, mighty and powerful and dangerous, in order to die on a cross, in order to give up his life for us, in order to become less than us, in order to become nothing, so that he might make us clean. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to let him love you. He does all this for love. That's what it says in verse 1. He goes to the cross. He makes us clean because he loved his own. He loved them to the very end. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to let him love you. And that can be really hard. We resist that a lot of the time. For the same reasons I think Peter resists it in this story. Because to be loved by Jesus is humiliating. Here's a really important thing. That word in English has come to mean something negative because we don't like the idea of being publicly embarrassed. But the word really just means to be humbled. That's what it means. And to be humble is not to think really badly of yourself. It's to have a correct understanding of yourself. Not to think that you're less than you actually are, to think that you're more than you actually are, but just to really understand who you are 
in light of Jesus and the cross. So being loved by Jesus can be humiliating in a good way, which is a very Christian thing to say. There's such a, good thing, there's such a thing as good humiliation. And that will mean that we need to accept that Jesus can forgive us and that we need to admit that we're actually dirty, that we need to be cleaned. Peter first struggles to admit that he's dirty, that he needs to be cleaned. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Absolutely not. I will never let you wash my feet. Coming to Jesus means repentance. Allowing Jesus to love you means repentance. It's a big, fancy biblical word for being someone who knows that their life is broken and messy and not perfect. That you recognize that you've actually got some stuff on you, that you've stepped in some things somewhere out there in the world. No matter how hard you try, there is no escaping the world we live in without getting a little dirty along the way, a little broken, a little messy. And so when it comes to, well, being loved by Jesus, we always approach him as people begging for forgiveness. Again, it's humiliating. People looking at God and saying, I've done a lot of things that I'm not proud of. I've done a lot of things that are bad, a lot of things that I'm ashamed of, a lot of things that I've gotten away with. And I just don't really know what to do with these things, but I think you might know what to do with these things. And for some of us, that's really hard, really hard to do. Because we like the idea that God can forgive us, but we just don't really like the idea of, you know, begging for forgiveness. Begging just sounds ugly. We don't like the idea that Jesus would have to die on the cross for some of the things that we've done, because they don't really feel like that big a deal. They feel like the kind of thing that we could maybe handle on our own. They're just... They're not the kind of thing that Jesus would have to get down on his hands and knees and be a slave to get off of us. That just, that's too extreme. That's, I'm not that bad a person. Being loved by Jesus means admitting that we're dirty. It's hard for Peter. It's hard for us. For some of us, though, I think hearing some of this language is really easy. We go, oh yeah, I'm a terrible person. Absolutely. I'm a horrible human being. I have no trouble with the idea of telling God that I'm broken and messy and terrible. In fact, every time I tell him, I feel like I just need to get baptized again because I'm just this really broken, messy, terrible person. And it's not difficult for us to have a really low opinion of ourselves because we already have a low opinion of ourselves. And we have to accept that God can really make us clean. We have to admit that we're dirty, but also accept that God can really make us clean. See, both of these things, thinking too highly of yourself and thinking too lowly of yourself, arrogance, Sounds really strange. But either way, you believe that you're stronger than the grace of God. That you are, in fact, such a bad sinner that God could never forgive you. Such a bad sinner that baptism isn't good enough for you. That, that maybe God isn't strong enough to handle That the cross is strong enough for other people, but maybe not me, because I'm such a horrible human being. And you may have caught some of the language of baptism in this story. That's not an accident. John does that on purpose. Unless you, you let me wash you. You have no part of me, Jesus says. There's this weird mystery in the Christian faith, this thing called baptism. And nobody really knows quite how it works, but we know that it does work, that God meets us in the waters and changes us and makes us clean and whole and new. But after baptism, sometimes it's really hard to interact with Jesus because it's one thing to come to Jesus and say, I'm a really broken, messy person, please forgive me. But it's hard to come back to him again and again and again and say, I think I'm screwing up in brand new ways now. I think I found new ways to be a terrible person. I think I found Christian ways to do this. And actually, some of those things that you forgave me for in the first place, I'm still doing some of those things. And some of these really old habits that I broke out of, I've kind of come back to. And, and I just I keep coming back to Jesus again and again and again. And I feel like maybe 
maybe I need the grace of God all over again. And Jesus would say, you do. You need the grace of God all over again. And yes, it's embarrassing. Yes, it's humiliating even. But the grace of God is strong enough even for you. No matter how dirty you've gotten, you're not quite as dirty as you think you are. No matter how dirty you've gotten, you are both more broken and less broken than you could ever imagine. And in the middle of it all, there's this humble God looking at you and looking at me. So no matter how low you've fallen, he's always below us. No matter how dirty you are, he's the one cleaning us up. That's the amazing mystery of the love of Jesus Christ, that he meets us in our brokenness and he makes us whole. And he meets us in the dirty filth that we find ourselves in and he makes us clean, really and truly clean. And when you allow Jesus to love you, you find that that changes you into a different kind of person. It pushes you out into the world to love other folks and to serve other folks the way that you've been served. If you want to follow Jesus, um, you'll find that you're going to look for opportunities to serve other people. Small things and big things. But that you'll become like our Master and Lord who gives us this example and calls us to follow him. Sometimes that means giving up a parking place that you're really excited about and somebody else wants to go into. Small, but it would a death, right? It's really hard on us. Sometimes it, it means taking the bad seat at a meeting or being served last when somebody brought Chipotle catering into work and you really want it and you know you're going to be left with just beans. It's going to be really sad. <laughs> Sometimes it means doing really big, hard things or getting involved in real messes and being somebody who's willing to clean them up. And that's also kind of what repentance looks like. Not merely coming to Jesus, but also living a life with Jesus. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this in a book called Mere Christianity. And he says this, Remember this repentance, this willing submission to humiliation and a kind of death, is not something God demands of you before he will take you back and which he could let you out of if he chose. It's simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, you're really asking him to let you go back without going back. Can't happen. But the same badness that makes us need it makes us unable to do it. Could we do it if God could help us? Yes. But unfortunately, we now need God's help in order to do something which God in his own nature never does at all. To surrender, to suffer, to submit, to die. Nothing in God's nature corresponds to this process at all. So the one road for which we now need God's leadership most of all is a road God in his own nature has never walked. But supposing God became a man. Suppose our own human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person. That person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was a man. He could do it perfectly because he was God. You and I can only go through this process if God does it in us. It's like when little kids learn to make letters. You kind of hold their hand and draw the letter for them. They're making the letter, but really you're making the letter along the way. Jesus says in verse 14, 15, 16, and 17, the same thing over and over and over again from different angles. Look, he says, if you call me master and Lord, and I do this, you should do this. I've set you an example, he says. And that word example in Greek is, uh, I don't know if you ever traced things when you were a kid. I traced things, where you put a piece of paper on top of another paper and you, you would trace it. I thought that that was drawing and that I was an artist. And I discovered later people could actually draw and I was just copying someone else's work. It was really disappointing to find out I was not in any way artistic. And uh, that's exactly what Jesus is describing, that we, we don't do new work, but we copy the work that he's already done. 
that we just we trace the pattern that he's set for us. 16, no servant is greater than their master. If he's done this, we do this. That we're never going to be better at being humble than him. We're never going to be better at serving than him. We're never going to be better at loving than him. And that's one of the beautiful things about following Jesus, that he leads us in it. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, he says. If you do them, you'll be blessed, which I don't think is the way that we look at service. A lot of the time when we look at service, we say, that seems, that seems like a bad job. That, uh, you, that TV show, Dirty Jobs, that was on the Discovery Channel for a while, that was really fun to watch. But nobody was like, I really want to do that, though. That seems super cool. It's fun to observe other people doing it and then, you know, to be grateful that someone else is serving us. But to know that God has called us into service to being these kinds of people is it's a difficult road to walk. Uh, Summer was in town last week. Summer Shockley, who's a missionary friend of ours that we've sent off to the UK with her husband. And, uh, she and I got lunch, and we were talking about all sorts of really fun things. But she's um, not paid to be a missionary. He's paid to be a missionary, and she's working a regular job and also um, loving folks in the name of Jesus. And she works at a hotel now. I was asking her if it was a hard switch to work in a hotel because she'd been a teacher before, you know, important and in charge with a job that people like and respect. And she said, you know, it's weird. I'm in customer service, and people are really demanding because it's a hospitality industry, but I just feel like I'm doing ministry. They ask me for things, and I give them things. They need help, and I help them. I'm serving them in the name of Hilton, but I'm serving them in the name of Jesus. That's, that's just who I'm called to be. And, who and it's, it's really not hard. My coworkers sometimes think it's really hard to do stuff like this, that it's humiliating, that it's embarrassing. And mostly when I see people who are really demanding, I think, well, it's not good that you're so demanding. And I wish I could set some boundary to help you with this. But maybe if I just serve you better and willingly, you'll see that maybe you shouldn't treat people like this. She's just willing to serve folks because she understands who she's really serving, which is Jesus. She understands who she's really following, which is Jesus. It's an incredible thing. I've seen stuff like this in action. Years ago, I was um, at a camp, and I was working with Young Life. I worked with Young Life for many years. And uh, Young Life does many things well and also has some issues along the way. Uh, and at this particular camp, uh, a speaker had been invited to speak to us. It was sort of a leadership weekend. And one of the things that Young Lifers do every time is make fun of the speaker. It's just a really normal thing. Uh, and it's very funny. And it's not a private thing. It's a public thing. Like at mealtime, there will be skits about you, the speaker, and they will mock you. And it's really good for your ego to watch people mock you and to realize you shouldn't take yourself that seriously. And it's funny to watch every single time. But this particular time, nobody had warned the speaker. And he had never been to a Young Life camp before. And he was extremely offended. And I'll tell you, Young Life, again, sometimes goes too far with things. This time, no. They were well below the line, which was nice. And still, this guy acted like somebody had insulted his wife publicly. I mean, it was, he was outraged and refused to speak at any more of the events. He'd come to speak at this leadership thing. And we were, the news kind of rippled through the camp of hundreds of these, you know, volunteer leaders and staff people. And I was staying in a cabin with the people who had kind of done the, the skits and they were just livid. Like, who is this guy? Who does he think that he is? That he, what, that he can come to a camp and speak about leadership and think that he's a big deal? Does, that's not why we asked him here. How can he not, like, how does he take himself this seriously? Everyone was against this guy. And it looked really bad, and it looked like he was going to leave, and we were all going to feel fine about him leaving, because who needs this guy? I don't want to learn anything from him. And somebody stood up. Um, somebody who was not involved in any of the skits, hadn't done anything to mock the guy, um, who hadn't invited the speaker in the first place, and actually had no particular dog in this fight, stood up in the front of the stage and invited everybody into the room 
Um, so hundreds of people come crowding in, and we're all sort of suspicious and angry and ready to just throw fruit at somebody. And this guy, a friend of mine, stands at the front of the room and apologizes. This beautiful, heartfelt apology, and it was embarrassing. I mean, he, he's in tears. He's acting like we've done this horrible thing, like we, someone had made racist jokes about someone. Like, it, the apology goes way too far. It's way too sincere. He's, he's just making a fool of himself, and we're all sitting there listening. But he's wrong. This guy is wrong. He's apologizing to him. He's apologizing to the room full of people. And I learned so much from that. I learned about life. I learned about ministry. I learned about what it means to follow Jesus. I learned about relationships and how to deal with conflict. I learned how to be wrong. I think about that fight when I'm in a fight with my wife sometimes. I think about that moment when I'm sitting in traffic and furious because some guy has just almost killed me. I think about that guy willing to say, this is all my fault, when it clearly is in no way his fault. Take all of the blame from everyone onto himself absolutely unjustly and humiliate himself in the process because he'd figured out what it means to follow Jesus. He has an idea of what Jesus treasures and what Jesus is willing to give up, what just doesn't matter. And I have lots of friends scattered all over the place who are really good at this, good at serving people in the name of Jesus. And they're volunteers or they're in ministry. Or they show up to this place. I mean, it's kind of almost impossible to be involved in this church without serving somewhere along the way. You probably put chairs back together or tables back together. People show up early and learn about sound systems or bother to push buttons on a PowerPoint or miss this thing entirely and go and hang out with kids and serve families and people here. Folks figure out tithing stuff when you're not around. And it's, just, it's a kind of place where we really do love and serve one another. We get to kind of practice what this looks like. and I love that about this church. And there are folks who occasionally will come and say this is too much work and they go somewhere else because they, they, they want somebody else to do that kind of work. And in our conversations, I usually say, you know, the, I totally understand, but if you go to a place that's really a place where they just pay everyone to serve, that would be a very unhealthy church. And the truth is, I don't think you've ever been a part of churches like that. I think even the bigger churches, there are all sorts of folks serving behind the scenes in ways you don't understand, in ways you don't see, and they're just happy to love you and serve you. They don't care if they ever get recognized. They don't care if you ever help. That's just who these people are. They've learned what it's like to follow Jesus. There's a friend of mine who works with special needs kids. She calls them Sneeds kids, which I like. And uh, years ago, I've learned a lot from her over the years because there's a kind of patience that comes with working with Sneeds kids um, that, that I think is really well rewarded because these are delightful people, special needs in some ways, but socially gifted in other ways. Uh, she says there's one particular person who's really hard for her to love, which for me just sounds crazy because she's really good at loving people. She said it was really hard for me to love because he had Down syndrome, but he was also kind of nonverbal and he had some other issues. His name was Eric. And for, you know, months and months he'd been coming to things, and he just, he wasn't nearly as easy to hang out with as some of these other kids. And she said, we took him away to this kind of weekend thing, and there was a hotel involved, and he was staying with his leader. And, um, they were sort of walking down the hall, she and the leader, and they heard kind of weird grunting coming from Eric's room, and they didn't really know what was going on. So they came in to check it out, and it turned out that um, there was no toilet paper in the room. And Eric had had explosive diarrhea, and had tried to solve the problem uh, with a variety of towels and other things. And there was poop just everywhere. Like, it looked like he had tried to cover the room in poop, she said. And it was funny, and it was ridiculous, and it was also really gross. And so the, the leader took Eric away, kind of chuckling, to help him find some new clothes. And she was standing there in the hallway, and she was thinking, I could just walk away, and this is somebody else's problem. I think I'm going to clean this room. 
no one will know, no one will care, some other leader will figure this out, someone else will figure this out. And she spent like an hour cleaning up someone else's poop from walls and towels and all sorts of things. Someone who didn't really like her and someone she didn't really like. She knew she wouldn't be thanked. She cleaned it all up and she said later in that day, um, I ran into Eric again and he gave me a hug. First time he'd ever given me a hug, first time he'd ever acknowledged me really as a person. And it was like somehow in serving him, a message had gotten across that we hadn't been able to get across in any other way. He really felt loved. Servants aren't greater than their master, folks. That's what Jesus says. Servants are not greater than their master. You and I follow somebody who was willing, not merely to get down on his hands and knees and clean things off of people's feet, but to go to the cross willingly and freely for us, knowing that God had given everything into his hands, he laid it all down for us, humiliated himself for us. He set us an example that we need to follow. Not one that should make us feel bad or make us kind of turn back to Jesus and say, well, I'm this really incredible person. Look at all the people I'm serving. But one that continues to drive us back to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord I need you to love me and show me what it looks like to be a servant again because I'm going to go back out into the world and try to do this again. I want to love people in the name of Jesus because that's what it looks like to follow Jesus, to take the posture of a servant. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. And we thank you for the good news of the gospel. And we thank you that you were willing to humiliate yourself. That you're willing not merely to become a human being, but an unimportant one. And then you gave away even that kind of power, Lord, to show us what it was like to be a servant. And we go out into the world as people who lead, but we lead as servants remembering that, that a good life always looks like what you say it looks like and never like what the world says it looks like. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to walk into the muck and mire and find the things that you treasure and know that you found us there and that you've really made us clean, O oh Lord. We pray that you'd help us to come to understand what it means to be loved by you and what it means to follow you. In the name of Jesus, amen.